Let's begin with prayer. Our Father, when we can look at the wondrous cross, when we consider it, and consider what you have done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ, uh, we are literally blown away. Lord, we do not know why you did it. We know that you love us, but we don't even know why you do that. Uh, we are here this morning, Lord, to acknowledge our total uh, utmost dependence upon you for every breath that we take, for every day that we live. Lord, we know that you are sovereign, you are a, a loving and merciful <clears throat> and gracious God, and that uh, were it not for that, uh, we would all be lost. I thank you for this time this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word uh, that we're going to be looking at this morning. Lord, I pray that your word would speak, that it would not be uh, this speaker that uh, tries to uh, use eloquence or uh, any kind of persuasive speech, Lord, but that it would just be your word, that it would be the truth of, of your scriptures, that we would... Uh, come away with an, a fresh appreciation of the gospel, a fresh appreciation of uh, the Apostle Paul's passion and obsession for the gospel and why and what he did and how that relates to us. Father, I, I just pray for this time. I pray that, that we would be not just hearers, but that we would uh, be able to pay attention to your word this morning. Thank you for uh, Jesus Christ. Thank you for what we have in him, a righteousness that's not of ourselves, but a righteousness that is from you through faith in Christ alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, we're going to be in Philippians for the next two weeks. Uh, the title of the sermon uh, I, I guess it's got a couple of titles. Uh, there was one up there, and then there's one on my notes because somebody sent me this. Uh, Preaching the Gospel, a Marvelous Obsession. And so we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 primarily, okay? Uh, we have a, a term uh, in medical terminology. If somebody's got a chronic condition and they haven't been taking any medication for it ever, uh, we say that they are naive to therapy, and so I want you all to know this morning that I am naive to preaching. Uh, this is the first time I've ever been up in front of a church congregation and preached a sermon. So uh, I pray that uh, you would do what Scott has been in, exhorting us to do the last three Sundays uh, in, his ser in his sermons about uh, strengthening the weak and so forth, that you would have patience with me. Uh, I'm not going to very far from my notes this morning. Uh, I'll probably do quite a bit of reading, so uh, uh, just be patient with me. We're going to start in uh, Philippians, so uh, everybody turn to the first chapter of Philippians, please. We're going to actually read the entire uh, first chapter of Philippians, and then we'll go back and focus primarily on verses 3 through 7 this morning, okay? Paul wrote this letter uh, to the Philippian church around 60 AD. He was in prison in Rome at the time. And uh, 
so we're going we're gonna to see a lot in these next two Sundays related to his imprisonment and, and how that affected what he wrote. So, beginning in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, Christ is pre in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through my, your prayers and the, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents." This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have." Okay, uh, it's important for us to know something about the background of the city of Philippi and the church there to help us better understand the things we're going to cover in the next uh, couple of weeks. The city of Philippi uh, is located in Macedonia on the Via Ignatia, and that's the main road from Rome to Asia. Uh, the city's also about eight miles from the Aegean Sea. It was conquered by Philip of Macedon, who is the father, or was the father, of Alexander the Great. 
Uh, he conquered it in about 357 BC and named it after himself. It became an important gold mining center. In 42 BC, Mark Antony and Octavian, who later became Augustus Caesar, defeated Brutus and Cassius at Philippi. These names may be familiar to you. Brutus and Cassius, of course, uh, killed Julius Caesar. Uh, Augustus Caesar is the one who issued the decree that all the world should be taxed and caused Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem. So there is some history here of Rome, but also uh, of, of the Christ. Augustus later made Philippi a Roman colony for Anthony's supporters who had been expelled from Italy. Philippi had a prominent place in Roman history, and during Paul's time it was populated by Roman citizens, including many retired Roman soldiers who were given land and homes there by Rome as rewards for their service. It was a very patriotic colony with its own senate and legislature. It was a little Rome, as it were. Paul's first visit to Philippi probably occurred around 50 AD. The account of it is in chapter 16 of Acts, beginning in verse 9. Uh, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm not going to read this in its entirety, but you can follow along in your Bibles while I paraphrase uh, it for you. While still in Asia, in the city of Troas, Paul saw a, village, a vision of a Macedonian man entreating him to come over and help us. Uh, he was accompanied by Silas, who was his partner in spreading the gospel in this mission trip, and also Timothy and Luke. When Paul and his companions arrived in Philippi, they found no synagogue. This means that there were very few, if any, Jewish men there. According to Jewish law, it required at least 10 Jewish men in a community in order to form a synagogue. If there were not enough men to form a synagogue, the law provided that a place of prayer could be established outdoors and preferably near water. In this case, there may have been no Jewish men at all since none are mentioned, or if there were any at all, they may have been laying low because of the intense Roman sentiment that existed in Philippi. Paul went to the place of prayer, which was outside the city gate at the riverside, and he found some women meeting there. We don't know how many women there were, but the group likely consisted of Jews and proselytes of Judaism. Lydia is mentioned specifically as a worshiper of God. This means that she was not Jewish by birth, but was a proselyte. The text says that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to, to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is interesting because I think we can all agree that there is a difference between just hearing something and paying attention to it. In the case of hearing God's word, Paying attention is a divine work <clears throat> in the life of the hearer, and in this case it appears that only Lydia paid attention. Just what did Paul say that Lydia paid attention to? It's not recorded here, but we can figure it out pretty easily by just looking ahead a little bit uh, into Acts 17. In the first three verses of Acts 17, this is after Paul and his companions had left Philippi, they were in Thessalonica, and so I'll read that. Uh, 17 verses 1 through 3. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Since these women at Philippi likely had some knowledge of the Jewish Scriptures, Paul probably used a similar approach in preaching to them. The result was that Lydia believed and was baptized, along with the rest of her household. 
Next, we come to the incident involving the slave girl. In it, we see the intensity of Roman patriotism that existed in Philippi and how it stood in opposition to the word of Christ. This girl had a spirit of divination, in other words, a demon, and she was able to tell fortunes and bring her owners a sizable income. She began following Paul around and his companions and saying, these men are servants of the Most High God and proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, she kept doing this over and over, day in and day out, until Paul became very annoyed with her, and so he cast out the demon. And immediately, of course, she stopped proclaiming, and, uh, but she also stopped bringing in money for her owners. Uh, they became very angry and, and reacted very violently to this. Uh, they dragged Paul uh, and his companions before the magistrates. They, they got a crowd whooped up. Uh, it was, a, it was quite, a, quite a scene. And the magistrates were also carried away by this. Uh, they, there was no hearing, no trial, no nothing. Uh, they just uh, stripped the clothing off of Paul and his companions and beat them with rods severely and threw them in jail. Now, the charges that were brought against Paul and his companions were this. These men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. And they are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to practice. Okay? So, it's interesting that until the demon was cast out of the girl, that these men did not really care about what Paul was preaching. They didn't care about his message. But as soon as it hit him in the pocketbook, then all of a sudden uh, it was anti-Roman, okay? It was something that we can't advocate. We can't, we can't adopt these, these, uh, these practices because it's illegal for us to do that as Romans. Uh, so, as Paul and Silas were in prison, uh, this, seems like a, this seems like a severe reaction, but I, as we know, if you've read anything about persecution of Christians today in the world, we know that this kind of thing and, and far worse is happening to Christians all over the world as we speak here today, as we sit here today. Uh, so, uh, as we find recorded over and over in our Bibles and we see throughout history up to our own day, persecution for the cause of Christ leads to further growth of God's kingdom. While in jail, Paul and Silas were singing hymns and praying to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake that damaged the prison to the point that the doors were opened and all the prisoners' bonds were released. The jailer, fearing that he was going to be executed if the prisoners escaped, was about to kill himself, but Paul restrained him. The jailer then rushed into Paul and Silas and fell down before them and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Their response Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, that wasn't all they said, okay? And so we have to realize that just the statement, believe in the Lord Jesus, was not enough to convert the jailer because it follows up that Paul, it says that they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. So they went with the jailer to his house and they spoke the word of Christ to him and to his household. And his whole household believed And in the morning, then, Paul and Silas were released. Uh, There are some details there about the fact that they uh, kind of humiliated the magistrates by telling them they were Roman citizens and so forth. But they went back and then visited Lydia and the others and then left Philippi. So let's go back to Philippians chapter 1 now. We see that the church in Philippi, by the time Paul wrote this letter, which was about a 10-year span from the time he had visited there initially, Uh, This was an established church with overseers or elders and deacons. And this church was especially dear to Paul. He loved this church very much. 
They supported him financially on several occasions. In Philippians 4.15, uh, Paul states that they were the only ones that entered into partnership with him in giving and receiving when he left Macedonia. Apparently, they had sent a uh, gift to Paul very recent to the writing of this letter. Uh, Paul's affection for them is evident in the way that he encourages them and gently admonishes them. And the thing we have to keep in mind too, uh, folks, and, and you all know this, this isn't just a letter. Uh, this isn't just a letter to a church. This is the Word of God. Okay, this is the inspired Word of God. This this, uh, this letter is in the canon of Scripture because Christians through the early years of the church used this text as the Word of God. They trusted it as the Word of God and believed it. And that's why it's here, okay? It wasn't just an arbitrary decision to stick this in. So we're going to look back at Philippians 3 through 7, which is kind of where we're going to focus today. It says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Okay, we're focusing on the gospel today. Uh, if you read commentaries about the book of Philippians and, and hear sermons, a lot of times you'll hear that the theme of Philippians is joy, okay? Because Paul uses the, the word joy a lot. He talks about being joyful. He talks about his joy. But if you read Philippians, what you really get out of there is it's all about Christ. And it's about the fact that Paul was so passionate about Christ and he was so passionate about the gospel and preaching the gospel. Uh, after his initial greeting, he tells them how he prays for them in thanksgiving and joy. And why? He says, because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, they were helping Paul spread the gospel. Uh, he had a special affection for them because of that. What we see in, this, in, this, in, this, in his letters, in this, uh, in this letter, in, this, in his words, is a passion for preaching the gospel. It was his mission and his calling. He expresses his deep affection for the Philippian church in verse 7. He says, uh, you are all partakers of grace with me in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So we're going to look at these two words with respect to the gospel, defense and confirmation. These were apparently very important things to Paul. What is defense? I've got a bottle of water here. Hold on just a second. I'm going to take a drink. Okay, the, the word uh, defense in Greek is the word apologia. Uh, we get our word apology or apologetics comes from it. If you're familiar with apologetics, Christian apologetics, it's about knowing what you believe and knowing why you believe it, the evidence for your faith and understanding the evidence for your faith. Not just that it's some blind leap. Uh, this stuff doesn't really necessarily have to be true, but it does something for me, so I'm just going to believe it. Okay, that's not the Christian faith. And uh, apologetics is uh, being able to uh, explain why you believe. So, uh, Paul defended the gospel. He defended it against doubts, attacks, and false doctrines. It really suggests a courtroom setting where evidence is being presented. So, if you go back to the account in Acts 17, 1 through 3 that we saw earlier, uh, Paul used the Old Testament scriptures to establish the truth of the suffering Messiah. Uh, 
the Jewish people back then didn't focus on the suffering Messiah. They wanted a conquering Messiah. And so they focused on the verses in the Old Testament in the, in the law and the prophets that referred to uh, the, the, the great king that was going to deliver them, that was going to conquer. But they overlooked all the verses, all the, all the, the, uh, the Old Testament passages that deal with the suffering Messiah. So Paul would use the Old Testament scriptures and probably very much the servant songs of Isaiah 52 and 53 uh, to establish that Jesus would have to uh, uh, be crucified or have to die and, and, and then be raised again. Uh, the key words in those verses are he reasoned, he explained, and he proved. And that describes his tactics. Uh, he would establish the fact that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead. Secondly, his evidence is the life of Jesus itself and his resurrection, that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. We see this in another place in our Bibles. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 24. And we're going we're gonna to look, uh, actually, the, the, this is the account of the uh, men who met Jesus after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus. And the actual account uh, is in verses 13 through 34, but we're not going to read all of that. Uh, we're just going to kind of talk about what, what's there, and then we're going to read the very uh, end of it, okay? This is an account of two men after the crucifixion of Jesus who were walking down the road, and the resurrected Christ met with them on the road. They didn't know who he was. They just thought he was some you know, local yokel or something. And he asked them what they were talking about because they were talking about the crucifixion. And they kind of said, well, you mean you don't know what's going on? You haven't heard what's, what's, uh, what has happened? And so they started telling him all about the fact that uh, Jesus, who they thought was a great prophet and uh, had, had uh, been crucified by the, by the Jews and uh, all these things. And so Jesus listened to all this. And then in verse 25, he says this, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So see, Jesus used the scriptures <clears throat> to tell these men about who he was. So the picture of the suffering Messiah in the Old Testament is what Paul used. Okay, These are examples of reasoning, explaining, and proving. These key words in Acts 17.3. Paul also used a similar approach with the Corinthian church. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you uh, could make a list of all possible problems that you think a church could ever have, it probably would not include some of the problems that they had in Corinth. Uh, Corinth had lots of problems, okay? Uh, and... Paul had to address, it took him two uh, letters here and probably a third one that we don't have uh, to address all the issues. But uh, in chapter 15, apparently there were some people in Corinth that uh, were teaching that there was no resurrection from the dead. And so 
uh, since this is a key doctrine to the Christian faith, the resurrection, uh, not only of Jesus, but of our ultimate resurrection, okay, when he comes back, uh, uh, Paul had to, he had to deal with this. And so here's how he deals with it. Very much, as we read these, you'll see it's very much like a lawyer in a courtroom, okay? We're going to read verses 1 through 8 first. He says, now would it remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. This is the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, one, that He was buried, two, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, three. Then, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul lays out the basic tenets of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised, according to the Scriptures. Okay? And then he talks about the eyewitnesses. So in a courtroom, if a lawyer is presenting his case, he's going to talk about the truth. Here's, here's the facts. And not only that, but here's eyewitnesses that back up what I'm saying. Okay? We've got, we've got over 500 of them here, okay? And you can go talk to any one of them if you want to because most of them are still alive, okay? So that's, that's the first thing he does. Then the second thing he does is he talks about, okay, well, let's suppose there isn't a resurrection. Where are we if there's not a resurrection, okay? So then let's look at verses 12 through 14. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And then verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And verse 19, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Okay, so yeah, if there's no resurrection, we're toast. I'm wasting my time. In fact, I'm probably in great sin because I'm testifying about something that God, I say God did that he didn't even do. Okay? So I'm, I'm lying. And I'm lying about God. And, and so he said, you're, you're still in your sins and your faith is in vain and you are wasting your time and, and everybody should just be pitying us if this didn't happen. Because, uh, you know, I've, this is an aside, but I've heard preachers say, I've sat in, in churches and heard preachers say, that, you know, the Christian life is great. And even if Jesus really, if this, if this really isn't true, I would still believe it because I'm so much better off by believing it than I would be if, if I didn't. And I'm thinking, you know, Paul says, you're crazy if you, if you believe that. Because if this didn't happen, you know, why not do whatever you want to do? Why not uh, live for yourself and yourself alone and just and go for all the gusto you can in this life because that's all you've got. That's all there is. So that's the, that's the uh, argument Paul lays out. And then in verse 20 and 22, he comes back though, and he hits them with this. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, 
by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Paul goes back and he, this is basically the doctrine of original sin here. In Adam who sinned all die, okay? We're all the, the inheritors of original sin. <clears throat> but he says, just as in Adam all die, in Christ shall all be made alive. So you see, Paul, Paul argues this. He reasons it. He, he uh, instructs. He informs. Uh, and he justifies his position <clears throat> like, a, like a lawyer arguing in a courtroom. Uh, and if you look at Paul throughout, if you read, if you read where he was before the, the, uh, the, the, the different leaders and acts and what he said, this is very much uh, his, his approach to sharing the gospel. Uh, Paul goes, he goes for the facts of who Jesus is and what he did, okay? He, he says very little, about, uh, very little about himself and his own experience, okay? So, as Paul did this, we too should be prepared to defend the gospel, not merely for the sake of argument, but so that those who hear might be spurred to examine their own belief systems in light of God's Word. It's crucial that we know what we believe and why we believe it so that we can communicate it to others. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that we can do in evangelism uh, is we can ask somebody to tell us, what do you believe? Explain, you know, do you believe in God? If not, tell me why you don't. And if you believe in Him, what do you believe about Him? Just tell me. You know, I'll just be interested to know. And, and we can use that as a launching point uh, for further discussion. Okay, now we're going to consider the word confirmation. Uh, there's no nuances, I don't think, in the word confirmation in the Greek. It just means to establish something, to set it up as firm, and to set it up as foundational. The gospel is foundational to the Christian faith. Without the gospel, uh, the Christian faith is, is null and void. Okay? Uh, the good news of Jesus Christ, without it, we don't have a Christian faith. And Paul zealously defended and confirmed the gospel because he had total confidence in its truth and its reality. The gospel is a message. It's not a lifestyle. Okay? It's a message, and it has to be declared. It's about Jesus Christ, not about us. The gospel is not a story that I tell somebody about how after I received Jesus, I quit doing A and started doing B. Okay? It's not about finding a higher purpose in life. It's not about getting my problem solved and finding inner peace. It's about the fact that I was alienated from God and under the divine, His divine judgment for violating His holy law. But He took on flesh. He became a human like me. He lived a totally righteous life in all aspects of obeying the, the law of God. And he took the penalty for my sins upon himself by dying on a Roman cross and was victoriously raised by God from death to life. That's the gospel. That's not intuitive to human beings. Our, 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 our natural state does not gravitate toward that, okay? The gospel is not a moral code or a set of ethics. All of us intrinsically understand law because it comes naturally to us and we gravitate towards law. Romans 2.14 states, and you don't need to turn there, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So 
everyone has a standard, set of standards or principles for what they believe is right or wrong, acceptable and unacceptable behavior, okay? They may all differ, okay? Some may have this set of standards, others may have this set of standards. Uh, the problem with having a set of standards is that no one can live according to their own set of standards. Uh, it's a, it's a, a law unto themselves, as Paul says, speaking of the Gentiles, and it's, for most people it's dynamic. Because we're unable to live according to our own set of standards, our tendency is to change our standards when we find that we can't live according to them. Okay? So I'll just, yeah, I'll just change it. It's okay to do this sometimes. Okay? Uh, and you know what? If I, if I do, if, if there is a God and, and if there's an afterlife, and if, if I just do what I think is the right thing to do most of the time, I'll probably go to heaven or, or I'll probably, I'll probably uh, go to be with God or whatever. Uh, but we change their, our standards because we can't live according to them. And also, society's standards are changing all the time. What society says is right and wrong is changing. And so, we'll change our standards to agree with society because we don't want to be oddballs, you know. But the gospel stands in stark contrast to this. Unlike law, it is counterintuitive to our basic human nature. And it must be told and declared. In contrast to earning righteousness or acceptance from God, by following a set of standards, it's about being given something that we don't deserve and that we are totally powerless to merit. The gospel does not morph or change over time because its author does not. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I don't mean uh, at all to discount the changes that result in a person's life from coming to Christ in faith. I don't intend to discount personal holiness and piety. One who has believed in Jesus uh, and come to faith in Christ will, by virtue of the Spirit's presence in his life, undergo changes in behavior and have a desire to please God and know him. And there's nothing wrong with sharing those things with unbelievers, but they in themselves are not the gospel. Okay? <clears throat> in fact, if that's all we give people, we portray Jesus as a master therapist and life coach. Okay? And frankly, if he's nothing more than a master therapist and a life coach, then he just becomes one of many possible options from which to choose, part of a religious smorgasbord, so to speak. Paul was obsessed with the gospel because he believed with all of his being that it is the only hope for mankind to be reconciled with a holy, just, righteous, loving God. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by faith alone in Christ alone. So where are we today with this? Can we defend the gospel in a culture defined by universalism where whatever you believe about God or not is okay and whatever I believe about God or not is okay and your beliefs and my beliefs are just as valid as each other? Just don't try to tell me that your beliefs are more valid than mine or truer than mine. That's the culture we live in today. I want to read an excerpt. Uh, this was a recent post on the White Horse Inn blog by Michael Horton. He's telling about a situation uh, recently that happened. Uh, Horton's the author of a number of books, including Christless Christianity. Uh, the title of his blog post is, In Christ Alone Didn't Make the Cut. Okay, he's talking about the song, In Christ Alone. And if you're familiar, if you've been here very long at Crosspoint, you've probably sung In Christ Alone because we sing it here. Okay? This was posted on August 7th. According to a recent Christianity Today online report, 
the worship song in Christ alone didn't make it into the new Presbyterian Church USA hymnal. Apparently, mention of God's wrath being satisfied by Christ's vicarious death was a sticking point. The hymnal committee initially wanted to include the song, but asked authors Keith Getty and Stuart Townsend for permission to edit out the offending line. Instead of, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, the committee wanted, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Despite the fact that the new version still rhymed, the authors refused to grant permission. Committee Chair Mary Louise Bringle told the Christian Century that the view that the cross is primarily about God's need to assuage God's anger would communicate the wrong message to worshipers about the meaning of Christ's death. The CT report referred to its cover story in 2006 on how a growing number of evangelicals believe Christ's atoning death is merely a grotesque creation of the medieval imagination. And that's the end of, the, of, of what I'm going to read from the post. The post is much longer, and it'd be very, if you're interested, I can give you the website address, and you can go read it for yourself. <clears throat> this is in spite of the fact that the doctrine of Christ's atoning death is all over the Bible, and it's spelled out in spades throughout the New Testament. So where somebody gets the idea that it came along in the Middle Ages... I don't know. But this is merely one example of the undermining of the gospel message that's occurring in our day, particularly in the so-called church. Uh, we're going to consider more on this particular subject next week. Uh, but in closing, I want to challenge you with a couple of points. Do we make it our goal to communicate the gospel to people and not some therapeutic message about how Jesus can improve their situation or their circumstances in life? Let's consider this week how we portray our Christian faith to those around us in our everyday walk. And I'm taught, I, I, I've been undone by this sermon uh, as I prepare this as usual when you get into the Word and you start trying to do something like this, whether it's teaching on a Wednesday night or whether it's preaching. Uh, the, the person that the fingers are pointing back to is me, okay? I need to, I need to examine myself in this. I think that uh, we have, in a lot of our evangelical uh, teaching, uh, the way we have been taught to share the gospel has been to focus on our story. You know, how did I come to Christ and what's he done for me? And, and so often this can focus on just experiences. But folks, the doctrine of, of salvation is critical Paul says in, in Romans chapter 1, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe, okay? So, it's the power of the gospel. It's not the power of my story. It's not the power of what experiences I've had. It's the power of the gospel. When people read about the divine judgment of God and and yet they read about the love of God that saves them from the divine judgment. That's the power to save. Okay? That's what we need to be communicating. So I challenge you this week to consider that. Okay? And next week we'll continue with the theme of the marvelous obsession with the preaching of the gospel. Now we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And uh, I'd like for us to just turn over a couple of pages in Philippians to uh, chapter 3.
I'm going to read just a, a few verses here out of chapter 3. This is Paul talking about his, his life in Christ. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's about the gospel. Uh, because of the gospel, we have a righteousness that is not our own. It doesn't come from our own righteousness, but it comes from God through faith in Christ. This morning as we take the, as we take the supper, uh, let's remember that Christ died and rose again so that we could have a righteousness that's not ours, of, our, of our own. And so, let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we can come here and worship you in spirit and in truth, that we can come boldly before your throne to receive mercy and help in time of need, that we can cast all of our care upon you because you care for us, because of the work of Jesus, because of his atoning death, because of his resurrection, and the fact that he now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven and is our great high priest and our intercessor. Lord, as we take the supper, I pray that we would do so in remembrance of him. It's his name we pray. Amen.